Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. I am joined as always by partner in crime, Dom Cook. And we are rejoined by Web Bar of High Bar Media. Web, I have been thoroughly enjoying the High Bar Weekly Letter up to 11, which Web has resurfacing various interviews from the past from some legends. So this week we had design icon Ray Eames. We had John Hughes recently, Dr. Seuss. David Fincher, a name that you're going to hear come up in this particular episode. So one, thank you, Webb, for doing that. And two, welcome back, Webb. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I really love curating those interviews and bringing new life to them. Yes, they are something that we all enjoy. I feel like people should be talking about these interviews more. So hopefully we facilitate a little bit of that. We certainly had people talking about the last time we did one of these content roundups from the first half of... 2023. My sources say that one of the biggest founders episodes on James Cameron was a direct result of the commentary on this exact show with these exact people. So hopefully we can create something similar on the back of this. One can only hope. How about that? That is almost certainly true as well. Yeah, we don't need any other evidence besides references and if you just check the tape and some of the commentary. So for this go around, we shortened it up a little bit. We're going to do one article or book, one film or TV series, and then one non-Colossus podcast episode. And we're going to start with Webb himself. Webb, kick us off with a favorite article or book that you read this past year. Okay, so... I've read more books this year than I've read in my life, which is actually saying a lot. And most of them are actually not from the last year. They're going back decades or filling in the blanks of books I've missed. And so I decided to pick an article, which was surprising as I looked at my Goodreads. And I decided to go with a New Yorker profile on Larry Gagosian by Patrick Radin Keefe who I feel like is one of, if not the best writer, journalist working today. The piece is a quintessential profile by The New Yorker that really only The New Yorker could write. Between the access, quotes, you get the entire biography, you get Gagosian's background, you get the stories from William Morris, the selling posters in LA at the beginning of his career, and really then the building of an empire in the 80s and 90s and through today. I love learning about creative worlds, methods, process, 
but also the people who have longevity and have remained in power and influence for decades. And yet there's not that much necessarily written about Gagosian. I mean, his gallery is, I think saying like powerhouse would probably be an understatement, but they have their own <laughs> media arm that if you go to the website, you're like, God, this looks great. No, they don't need to put ads on it. So it's the most beautiful website you've seen. Really just they're both curators, custodians, and sellers. You get this profile of a man and the methods and whether they're savory or unsavory, I think what The New Yorker does that I don't think any other publication would actually do is lets the reader decide for them without hitting you over the head with potential conflicts of interest with clients or bidding prices up on art. I mean, it's such a, would opaque be the word? Opaque market. And yet it's truly fascinating. And while it's a very long read, it was one that the moment it dropped, I think it was Monday in September. It was a two hours, just I got to read this and then send it to Matt and pretty much everyone I know. It's what The New Yorker does best. Thank God for that. That was going to be my question. Where does an article end and a book begin? Because I think, and Founders Podcast did an excellent summary. I would call it summary. <laughs> it was probably about as long as the piece on this. I think he said he printed it off and it was 77 pages, which I have to imagine that took up a fair bit of ink in those cartridges. But at what point do they think, oh, we should just publish this as a book as well? I think the New Yorker is actually pretty unique in that the writers of these profiles own the material. And so Keith, who had a book come out called Rogues last year, was a compilation of his books on rogue people. Gagosian would not fit into that book. That's more of a crime and mavericks kind of book. But he's able to put out a compilation because of it. I didn't really need to read any more, to tell you the truth. For the newsletter I'm curating, I actually have an interview that I've already read that's gigantic with him. And it's about 12 or 13 years old. It's fabulous. I doubt many people have actually read it. But it's a lot of the similar material. But this is just next level journalism, to tell you the truth. And it's not like a gotcha kind of piece. It's You have to sign up for this kind of story to be profiled to get the best of it, unless it's like a Frank Sinatra had a cold situation. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to your point where the reader gets to make their choices. And actually, bringing it back to that James Cameron piece, there was something similar there where Zach Barron, with that particular piece, does not say that James Cameron is an asshole. But you might be able to read between the lines of what some of the people have said in the piece when talking about James Cameron. And there may be unwillingness, but their undeniability in terms of what he does at the box office. And in this particular case, when you get into the opaque art market, they are certainly talking about the conflicts of interest without directly saying, this is a major conflict of interest. And records scratch the article, make you stop, make you question the morals, any of that stuff. So it's this higher level, really interesting read where you don't have to be talked down to. I think that stuff is super interesting. With Gargosian, to your point, it's this mix of, hey, let's take the creative side of things, talk a lot about that, obviously, where he got his beginning. And then let's mix in the market dynamics, which we obviously love. You have one of the most opaque markets with the biggest power players driven by ego. Then you have on the supply side, 
the poor, hungry, starving artists who want to get out there and they understand that there's some gatekeepers. And yes, there's a lot of issues with all this stuff, but it's quite interesting to hear and get a look behind the scenes because I'll be honest, I had no idea who Gargazian was before you sent the article. And then since then, I've obviously done a lot of reading and what a fascinating market. And my only conclusion from all of this is people are saying, oh, this will never have worth. This will never have value. Just look at the art market and look at how much money is tied in there. And then just tell me anything can be massively valuable in the future. Don't use logic to explain human nature. I'll also add, it's pretty unbelievable that within five or eight years in that range in the 60s, Gagosian, Barry Diller, Michael Ovitz, and David Geffen were all at William Morris. Geffen, yes. Unbelievable. And Jerry Weintraub. That was a talent factory that doesn't really get discussed. It was also a place that spit the talent out to do their own thing before they ever really made their mark internally. So I think that that's the opposite of what you want, but they were good at signaling talent. Was there any sense of why Gargosian was okay with this piece being written? That's always my question is, why is this being written? Getting your own place in the New Yorker is a big deal. And also trust, ego. Needed to drive more liquidity in the art market? I mean, potentially. The stories of the family that basically controls the Warhol marketplace, I mean, it's just a fascinating industry. It's one of those weird situations where I talked to some people in the industry after it came out. If you're a client, I think it you're like, this guy has my back. Yeah. And if you're not... You're like, I might want to work with this guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Across the board. Yes. I think that was the takeaway. Excellent read. And I do agree with Dom. You start to question where it, <laughs> it gets cut off as being an article versus being a book. Well, when you go to an article like that and the first bar says you can either obviously read this or you can listen to it and that'll take you an hour and 40 minutes. I often have to think twice about what my schedule looks like and whether I can fit that in. Yes, printers, Dom. I know I get ripped on. <laughs> printers, really great for that. I am not printing off 77 pages. I don't know how wealthy you think I am, but I'm not that rich. Oh, yeah. Save the rainforest over there. You do your thing. Let's get your pick for the year. Yeah, I'm going with a book. It technically didn't get published this year, but it was late 22, so I reckon that counts. It is Will Gadara's Unreasonable Hospitality, which charts... There you go. Web's holding it up for the people that can't see this, which is everyone. So Will Gadara, he became the general manager of 11 Madison Park, a restaurant in New York when he was 26. He would eventually turn that into the best restaurant in the world. But before I go on, I want to ask whether you two ever ate in the restaurant. Never. Never. I don't let my kind in there. <laughs> I walked past it countless times. I know it's still going, but Will is no longer associated with the restaurant. But I would love to go and sample it. The book, it's like an applied management manual, I'd say, over the 11 or so years that he took this restaurant to the best in the world. And the chapters are short and punchy, and they all come with lessons, but also actual stories and experiences of what happened and how they did stuff in the restaurant. And if I would summarize it best, it's, this is what excellence looks like. He's very unapologetic about trying to make the best thing in the world. I think the story starts off with him basically saying that we went to the award ceremony for the 50 best restaurants in the world and we came 46th or something and we just left almost in tears at how disappointing that was. Eventually, they would become number one through a whole host of things that you could think, how on earth do you decide on that strategy is a good idea? Because a bunch of stuff they do just I would cross off immediately when it came to mind. They just go to unreasonable lengths and that's part of the title of the book as well. 
it does a really good job of expanding your mind of thinking, okay, I could probably set my standards a little bit higher in terms of things that we could try in our own business. And while it's written about a restaurant and talks about hospitality throughout, I mean, this book is literally for every person business-minded in the world, in whatever vocation you're doing, there will be stuff that you can take from this and genuine. I highlighted so many things in this book that I will be sure to reread often. I think learning from the restaurant field, because it is such a difficult business, is actually an interesting lens because you get these people who by nature have to be obsessed with the craft or actual profession of cooking and there's no shortcut yes there are celebrity chefs but you have to put in such a grueling amount of time working in a kitchen and moving up the chain and yes you have some people who are able to skip the line or do things a little bit differently but for the most part especially in that type of atmosphere it's just grueling hours long days and we've referenced a lot of different examples of this on the show with nick Akonis and the different restaurant groups that we've covered thomas keller i'm curious i have not read the book is the business side of things talked about a lot there or is it purely on the hospitality side of things it is I think that it's one of those, and I'll get into this when we talk about podcasts a little bit more, but it's one of those things that is more difficult to quantify. And so you need total buy-in from both the business side, the investor side, and the kitchen. And without that synergy between each of them, it would be something that would just, the first thing to go is that unreasonable hospitality. But when you tell people about your experience at 11 Madison, you're not going to just mention the cuisine. You're going to mention the fact that they knew what you looked like when you walked in. They knew your name. They knew that you had a dog, that your dog wanted treats because they looked at your Instagram already. My copy of the book is literally every single page is highlighted, which defeats the purpose of a highlighter. Um, but it's up there with, I think, in terms of these service books with Setting the Table, Danny Meyer's book. And it's a Danny Meyer originally. 11 Madison was part of that empire, a restaurant group. When I saw that Dom was going to talk about this, I was really excited. That's how I got into it as well. Because I, so I read Danny Meyer's book on my honeymoon, and then I was looking for things similar to it. And then someone suggested this book, and I read it, and I was like, that is exactly what I was looking for as a follow-up to Danny's book. And obviously, they're very closely linked and both appear in each other's books. I agree. It's a really good business book. I put it up there as one of the best I've read. I would add that it's something completely missing from the majority of entertainment and media. That kind of service and thinking about the audience, not necessarily catering for the audience, but delivering value outside of what they're getting from the $9.99 that they pay each month. That's so true. And I think that the big takeaway for me was this stuff, some of it is expensive, but it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. Uh, most of it is just listening and watching and really understanding who the people that you're talking to are and then serving them something a little bit delightful in a way that makes them feel like they've been seen or heard or listened to, which I think to your point, most of media is fairly one directional. Yeah, there's so much value that can be given from businesses that aren't in the form of dollars and cents or the services that are advertised. So like in the podcast world, how you work with different guests, how you work with your sponsors, and just the little things that you can offer them that are maybe non-obvious, but can have a lot of value for them. How fast you pay your contractors, stuff like that. It all matters. Yeah, 100%. Totally. Matt, finish yourself. Good suggestion. 
a little bit of a curve into the world of entertainment. I was hemming and hawing with what to do with this. And I think the easiest and fastest read I had all year, which is what I'll go with here, was The Wager by David Grann. For those of you who saw Killers of the Flower Moon, Webb again holding up a copy of the book. If we had video, he would be an excellent prop master, just to hammer home the point. Excellent read, really easy read. If you're into shipwrecks, mutinies, power dynamics, organizational disasters when times get tough, which who isn't into all that stuff? Patagonia, it is about a shipwreck vessel in the mid-1700s, everything that occurred from there. It's a fascinating story. Again, this is the author who wrote Killers of the Flower Moon, which is recently adapted into a great Scorsese movie. Also, Lost City of Z and some other excellent tales. So a fun read. You get a little bit of history mixed in there. And one of the more enjoyable things that I had a hard time putting down this year, which is always a good sign for books. Webb, it looks like you may have read this. Yeah. David Grant is another one of those who does the work. He doesn't just sit behind a desk and queue up Google and chat GPT and says like, what happened with the wager ship? He went to the Patagonia. He went along the routes. It took him five days just to get to where their ship was wrecked. And it's 2023. It sounds awful. It all- <laughs> I was down in Patagonia and just reading some of this is horrifying to think about. First of all, Patagonia is an entirely different planet where you literally feel like you're on. I don't know what it's like to be on Mars, but if I were to imagine what it's like to be on Mars, it's like being on Mars. Completely absurd conditions. And you're like, how is this the same planet that I live on? for the other 360 days a year. And then the idea that it was so remote in that little area that it took five days for him to get there. It's just such a great symbolism for what the journey looked like and felt like. It was, before it even came out, Option and Scorsese and Leo are going to be doing the movie, which is important because if you want to be anybody of relevance in the world, you need to be able to say when you walk into a movie, I hope this lives up to how the book was because yeah. the book was really good. That person is needed in this world and you can be that person. What a surprise that it's you. <laughs> Never done it. Never done. <laughs> Dom, did you encounter this book at all? I'd love to add anything to this discussion, but I haven't read the book. The first time I heard about it was when you sent the recommendation over. But when I did do some cursory research, it did look like a book that I would enjoy. So I added it to my list and what you guys said certainly makes me more excited for it. Well, you can wait for the movie if you really want to. <laughs> and there it's a go. good segue <laughs> where we can start covering the movies. Webb, a big film year in 2023. I'm not necessarily saying that you're going to definitely pick a movie, but there was a lot of entertainment and felt like movies were back even with the strike. What'd you go with? I'm going to first say that movies are back, baby. Woo! <laughs> this year we got movies from Chris Nolan, Greta Gerwig, Scorsese, Michael Mann, Brad Cooper, Sofia Coppola, Yorgos... Ridley Scott, John Glazier, Alexander Payne, and now we got Core Jefferson and Celine Song's like debuts. I think it's best year for movies. It's 2019, maybe the one of the best three years or four years in the last 20 years. So, and they're not all superhero movies. In fact, of the ones I just named, I don't think any of those are, which is pretty wild. Can I just stop you there before you go on? Because I've just pulled out the transcript from our discussion earlier in the year where you start this segment of your favorite movies with, I'm really excited for the second half of the year. So we should probably qualify that it was not a universally good year for, for movies. I would say that it's a universally good September, October, November, December. There we go. And July. 
Yeah, in July. Arguably the greatest July in the history of movies, at least at the box office, which is why I'm going to say that my favorite movie of the year is Oppenheimer. I rewatched it this weekend, and the three-hour runtime felt like two. It speeds by like an action movie mixed with a heist movie, mixed with a horror film, mixed with a drama. And a lot of that watching it the second time was based on the music. And just the score really just moves it along. Also a great year for practical effects between Killers of the Flower Moon and this. And Barbie, honestly. like Barbie's practical effects are amazing. They almost ran out of that color pink globally. There was a shortage. It's awesome. For a movie that's dudes in rooms, for lack of a better term, I just think that Oppenheimer is propulsive and unbelievable. That said, and I think it'll probably win Best Picture. I don't think it'll win Best Direction, but I loved it. I don't want to say too much more about it, but if you end up buying it... Well, they dropped. I think we know what happened. Yeah, we know what happened. But I do recommend seeing the making of Oppenheimer, which is on the digital PVOD version, which has great little sections with all the cast, but also the practical effects supervisor and also the production designer who was... I want to say that she was production assistant on There Will Be Blood, so it all makes sense. It was an excellent movie, film, everything, I think. It was one of those where you get to learn a lot. There's the book, American Prometheus, about Oppenheimer, and that is a tomb of a book. I know the author of that book said that he watched the movie, I think, four or five times and thought it was incredibly well done, which is always a compliment. You don't always get those authors agreeing with the creative direction that directors take. And there's just a lot of history lessons, which I think probably as Americans, Dom, you're excluded from this, we fail to appreciate in terms of the dynamics that were actually taking place and what it actually meant, why it meant that. But I also thought the story of Oppenheimer himself, what he looked like in a lab versus how he represented the leader of this organization, and then what they're able to tell through his own story and the thread of his life, because you see a lot of his life. But I don't think it's purely about him. It's about the US, the world, everything. And there's just a bunch of lessons and learnings in there mixed into this incredibly well done, action backed, visual nirvana of a movie. So it's hard to match things up better than you do there. Yeah, this movie actually got me to the cinema, which is saying something. I'm not generally someone that goes to the cinema very regularly. And the scene with the explosion and the, the sound effects and everything is something that it's hard to forget. And whenever I think about this movie, I think about that scene in particular, which is pretty cool. You can't say that about too many films. Yeah. Good to see Nolan back out there doing something like this. And has he announced his next project? I don't think so. I am on the side of the argument to say that movies should be shorter, though. I know this one flew by for you, Webb, but I would be keen on setting a maximum runtime. I concur. You guys can just leave the movies early if you want to. You're getting <laughs> free stuff. You're paying the same amount for the ticket. The R is in the compression. Yeah, that's fair. Dom, what'd you go with here? I'm going with a, a TV show. There may be recency bias in this. Let me just get that out there. It's all the light we cannot see on Netflix recently. It's an adaptation of the book with the same title that Anthony Durr wrote in 2014. Sean Levy, who made Stranger Things, he is the director. And the story I heard was he read the book in 2014 over Christmas, couldn't put it down, said, I want to make this a movie. Him and Netflix went and bought it. And then here it is for us to watch. I really enjoyed it. It follows the story of a blind French girl 
called Marie and a German radio specialist slash soldier named Werner and their paths cross in St. Malo in France during 1944. There's a siege there, Germans, the Americans bombing the place to pieces. There are lots of different plot lines and storylines, but it's very interesting. I was really engaged as a four-part series. I guess it could have been a movie. I think they said it wasn't going to be a movie because doing it this way enabled them to add in more people and be a bit more true to the book. Although there are some specific differences, which upon reading, I was interested to see. They basically took some of the feedback on the book, for example, and this is going to be a spoiler, so turn it off if you're going to watch it. The boy and the girl, the main protagonist, they end up kissing, but they had never actually kissed in the book. And a lot of people said they were disappointed that there wasn't more of a connection in the book. So they did that for the screen. And it also ends on a happier note than the book, which I thought was also a funny thing in terms of the differences between the written word and what people value out of Netflix, for example. And the final thing I'll say about this is that there's a very good villain in it. He's very Bond-esque when I was watching it. I enjoyed him immensely throughout it. So I would suggest people should watch it. The funny thing when I was doing some extra research for this is that it's got very polarizing views between Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, which I always enjoy. Then you can make your own decision when you go and watch it yourself. We say Rotten Tomatoes, you say Rotten Tomatoes, which is perfect. Webb, did you watch and or read All the Light We Cannot See? I have not seen it. And that is my own fault because it's been really hard over the last six months to dive into new television. Movies, I can spare two or three hours, but the commitment phobia of television. Now, this is only four hours, so I'm going to have to watch it. But... I've yet to see this. I have yet to see it, although I have been trying to start it for however long it's been out, several weeks now. And Steph has taken an interest in watching this with me. So she wants me to wait. But that waiting may end up being several years. We have a few movies and TV shows that I'm still waiting on. So eventually I'm going to get to watch shows like The Sopranos and The Wire, but I'm still waiting for her to start those. That's actually not the case. But in this particular case, that's what I've been waiting on. She did read the book. She said the book was excellent, which is why she was interested in it. And yeah, it's neat to see there's this hybrid happening where you have four to six part TV shows, which clearly are on the cusp of should this be a movie or should this be a TV series? And they're getting caught in the middle. I don't actually mind it. It's like that movie that you don't want to necessarily end or you'd like to get more of it and it gets spread out. I think they're just trying to find the sweet spot, though, in terms of how long those should actually be. It's very British, actually. Oh, yeah. Makes sense why Dom would like it so much then. These five to six episode seasons somewhere to blow horses. Remember The Bodyguard? That was great. Whitney Houston? Not that one. The one with the guy from Game of Thrones who played Rob Stark. It's a lot of miniseries and four to six episode run count. The, the one slightly strange thing here is that it's not, and I saw someone talking about this, it's all in English and Netflix has become known a little bit for their language they're making things popular that aren't necessarily in English across the world. And so there are some slight weird things with the accents because the French people sound English, the Germans don't sound, it's all bizarre. But in terms of watching it for us, English-centric folks is helpful. The other thing I'd say is that it all hinges on radio, which as an audio person, I enjoyed. And that doesn't always happen. Interesting. Yeah, the accent stuff is always funny for me. You watch a series like Chernobyl and you have English speaking with Russian accents, which is always a little bit head-scratching. But you just suspend disbelief. That's what the cinema is all about. Even Star Wars villains traditionally speak British. Good guys don't the galaxy that far away and so long ago. It's surprising that they would have the English affiliations like they do, but just funny how the world works. Yeah. 
Again, suspend that disbelief. What have you got for us, Matt? I have what I am shocked is not more of a cultural sensation, particularly in the world that we live in, the tech slash finance slash entertainment Twitter focused world. And that is David Fincher's The Killer, which was one of my favorite movies in years. I'm trying to remember back to maybe Ex Machina was my the last movie that I watched with this much excitement as I did The Killer. And I think it's just this perfect dark humor about a portion of society that takes themselves incredibly seriously. David Fincher actually being in that category. So I think this is almost somewhat of a self-parody in terms of how I interpreted it. Michael Fassbender is unbelievable. And it just takes these people who are maybe over-optimizing for every task and portion of life that they're executing on. And they have this very specific mindset about how things work. And they might not actually be good at what they're doing. There's this open-ended question of over-optimization on all this stuff. And then whether that actually works. And maybe you're not actually that good at your job and what you're doing. So I thought this was absolutely incredible Been surprised not see the same type of reception. And I feel very alone on an island in terms of loving this movie as much as I do. But I am highly expecting that five years from now, this will be quoted and referenced in a very similar way to how people have latched on to whiplash and some of those ideas. This to me is just such a perfect, perfect film in so many ways. So I absolutely loved The Killer by Fincher. Rest easy. You're not the only one on Killer Island. It is awesome and hysterical, but also only Fincher could make this movie, at least make it this well. I think Netflix does this gigantic disservice by barely promoting these things. If you're going to pay that much money to make a David Fincher movie, how about you blow it out a little bit more than just, I don't know. I think they need to figure out marketing a little bit more. And I think they're going to be doing some more interesting things with actually having debut times with Rebel Moon because it's Zack Schneider. But The Killer was, to me, just so perfectly venture and cerebral and Fassbender is amazing. The first 30 minutes, in my opinion, are the best 30 minutes of any movie this year. I loved it. But yeah, we're on an island and it's a bummer because you can't really just say, hey, do you like The Killer? It's a stranger. It makes you sound a little crazy, but I thought it was fantastic. I'm sold. That was high praise from both of you. My wife is out of town tonight, so maybe that's what I'll have to put on and watch it because that was big. Popeye said it best. I am what I am. (laughs) It's a movie loaded with absolutely incredible quotes. I have to assume that it just goes over the audience's head in many cases, just how hilarious many of the lines from Fassbender are, and he just plays it so absolutely perfectly. Webb, I think you're right about the first 30 minutes. It's honestly confusing because you get this visual in the opening and you're expecting this masterpiece that's intended to be this dramatic film. But then the monologue and the character is like a contra to what you're seeing in front of you. So it's a little bit of a mind game. And maybe that confuses people in terms of what they're expecting to be watching. Yeah. I mean, he's the best at building that kind of tension combined with the internal monologue of an unreliable narrator and the Smiths. It's just fantastic. I've had the same comedy discussion with a few people. They all love the movie, but a few of them were like, I don't know if it's funny. (laughs) Just like, I think it's the funniest movie that came out this year. It's a good example of a movie where knowing who the filmmaker is really helps. Yes. Agreed. That's actually going to segue into next part of our 
conversation, which is favorite podcast episode, non-Colossus podcast episode of the year. And Webb, we'll start with you. Okay. My favorite podcast of the year was Rick Rubin's Tetragrammaton with Rory Sutherland, Dom's British mate. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) To me, Rory brings a level of rational rationality to psychology and behavioral economics and advertising that we are sorely missing today with the over-optimization of everything combined with just, they talk for three and a half hours in this podcast. And yeah, it's long, but there's just so many nuggets that I started taking notes as I re-listened to it yesterday. And I was like, my notes were like three pages long. And I just stopped. Ultimately, it's really helpful to know who both the people are. Rick is a great example of, I think his book this year, if I were to not talk about the article that I mentioned earlier, is probably the most influential book I've read. It's given me more confidence and more assurance as I produce shows and create new things. But if you don't know who Rick Rubin is, then it's pointless. It's like having him in the room and listening to him and having a conversation between two people that are kind of on the same wavelength where they're discussing so many topics from the Beatles to psychology to over-optimization. There was one quote that he described today's world as more Newtonian and he's more Darwinian. I was like, wow, that's a good way to put it. We spend so much these days on advertising, expecting that it's always going to work on Facebook and Instagram and the like, but you're not entitled for it to work. And we've just said, oh, yeah, I spent this much money. Why isn't it working? I think that there's a zag coming somewhere. I don't think that performance marketing is going away. But it's nice to hear a conversation between two rational people who are also irrational when it comes to the creative art and understanding that sometimes it comes from nowhere and sometimes it comes from your soul. But it definitely comes from people who are passionate and obsessed with these things, and it can't be manufactured. I just recommend it quite a bit. I feel like we've been trained for 20 years to buy Facebook, Google, and Silicon Valley to expect like our creative world or our world in general can be codified at scale. If that were the case, then the most money would produce the best movie with the best cast and the best script. And I'm pretty freaking happy that that's not the case. I think that it should be, it is ultimately the audience that determines it, but the person making it or the people making it are the ones who are at the end of the day, the ones who have to be proud of it or, or not. So I don't know. I could ramble about this for a while. If you haven't read Rory's book, Alchemy, it's also just phenomenal. Too many lessons to distill, but it's almost Cialdini's influence, but more applicable towards today's world. I think Rick's podcast is my favorite podcast outside the ones that we produce this year. He's done a phenomenal job. And the, the breadth of people he talks to and the conversations he ends up having with them is phenomenal. I'll be honest, I was hesitant first when I saw Rory Sutherland on his podcast to listen to it. Not because I don't like Rory, I think he's excellent. In my head, I was like, I've heard this before, I don't need to hear it again. But as soon as I put it on, I was like, no, 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 this, this is someone that you need to listen to regularly because you, you listen, you internalize, you think, wow, that's so interesting and useful, and then you forget. And so you need him again and again and again. And he's so lucid in his explanations. And he really puts things in common sense terms. It's really impactful. Great pick. Yeah, I think to your point on Rick Rubin's podcast, it's interesting, because 
all you hear about this past year is how celebrity podcasts have not worked outside of Smartlist. But I think Rick is the other example of where it does work. And I think there's a few things going on there. One, Rick is legitimately curious, as evidenced by the hours and hours and hours that each episode (laughs) goes on for. And the types of questions that are just completely unrelated to what a traditional podcast interview would look like. And I've enjoyed so many of them. One that recently came to mind that I listened to is Tom Hanks and going through how he built up his own process for confidence and just hearing a few of the things that he said that actually were very applicable to me in terms of how I can basically put on a mindset of achieving what some others achieve and maybe looking at them as like they're in a different tier. But some of the methods that that Hanks used. And it's like, well, how does Rick Rubin get to that point with Hanks to have him open up about that? I think there's a certain level of respect that he gets. And then the curiosity just makes people very comfortable. So there's that side of things, which is just awesome. And then to your point, Rory, we were talking before we hit record about my nervousness about me coming across maybe as an asshole on another podcast that I was on. But a lot of it revolved around this world that we live in where everyone thinks that the variables are very controlled. And if you want to do performance marketing, it's like, I should see this type of return. And it's like, that assumes that everything else is equal. And it's not. There are so many other things. And oh, by the way, you forget about if you can't draw a direct line from cause and effect, that doesn't mean that it's not there. And if you just need only direct lines to be drawn to see like cause and effect, and that's what's going to drive your decision making, you're going to lose out on most of the value that exists in the world. I think having people that can explain it in thoughtful ways and creative stories, that's what the world needs more of, not less of. I'll tell you an interesting thought experiment. Rick has quite rightly so he's earned this right. His guest list is truly out of this world. If you took the same person without his connections, could that person build a phenomenal podcast? And by phenomenal, I mean big, which they don't have to be the same thing. But for this argument, I'm going to call them the same thing. So I think that there's a relatability. And I'll see this sometimes where somebody has no idea what I did before. And they think I'm just some weirdo versus somebody who's like, oh, he worked in this particular sector and he looked at this thing. That encounter is completely different. There are just subtle unconscious biases that you have. And I think everybody that sees Rick's body of work says, I can talk to him about this stuff. He's going to understand what I'm talking about. Forget about the rest of the audience. So I think that experience is really what opens people up and has them talk on his same level. And maybe that's me being discriminatory against people who don't have his backstory. But I think at the very least, it allows him to get to those points a lot faster than it would just some Joe Schmo. Yeah, they're on the same level. I mean, you jump on Rick's podcast without having to really articulate who you are. Whereas there's others where it's like, we're going to say this person's an actor, basically dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. Whereas if you go on Stern, you don't go on Stern unless you're ready to say everything for three hours. And if you don't, then you're a really bad guest. Rick is going to ask you questions and then shut up. And I think that's the most powerful thing that he does. He asks weird questions that are interesting, that are also open-ended. I feel like there's a lot of people who, in the podcast, specifically creative podcasts, that ask a question because they want the listener to think they're smart. And Rick doesn't care. He just wants to have a good conversation with this person without having to level set or explain what was happening. If he wants an explanation, he'll say, explain it to me. It would be very difficult to emulate it. That said, there are certain people who have 
lengthy interview podcasts who are very successful. I think so much of what Rick does on that podcast is he might have a booking person, but I know that he's picking up a lot of these guests in his own car and they're going to Malibu where he lives at Shangri-La. Yeah, he lives at a house called Shangri-La. That's where they filmed the pool scenes from The Last Waltz. I think that's part of the magic. He's doing this in person in a very comfortable place for him. And I'm sure the guest feels very comfortable too. As you say, he talks about it sometimes that he's actually picking these people up. That is a huge component to what makes this good. It's a big deal. And it's not like you're going into the metaverse and having a conversation. Shots fired. <laughs> Catching strays out. I'm here. sorry. Dom, any closing thoughts on Rick before we get to yours? He came a close number two in my podcast rankings. And I was actually going to pick the one with him and John Mayer. And when he gets John to pick up a guitar. Incredible. However long that segment is, that's the best segment of podcasting I had all year, maybe all decade. It was honestly phenomenal. He had a very strong showing there. I didn't go with Rick's podcast, but I did go with John Mayer talking to Ed Sheeran on Hodinkee's Talking Watches. They took over that platform. And if you don't know what Talking Watches is, normally Ben Clymer, but sometimes other people at Hodinkee go and talk to celebrities or watch collectors about their collection of watches. And often it descends, they pick up the watch and ask a question or two, but it descends more into a story about why they got this watch and at what point in their career were they and what does it mean to them, etc. And so the conversation becomes pretty wide ranging based on the watches in front of them. That is no different here. Ed Sheeran and John Mayer are very close friends. And essentially, they're just sat at a table in a recording studio with a bunch of Ed's watches in front of them. And I would say very expensive <laughs> watches. Some of them are really cheap, but it's an hour and 10 minutes, I think. And it's just a phenomenal conversation, again, between two people who are really talking at the same level, in the same language, who know each other pretty well, are very comfortable with each other. And while you are learning about watches from two people who are incredibly enthusiastic and knowledgeable about them, you get a ton of insight just into how Ed thinks about the world through the lens of these watches. He talks about why he bought certain watches at inflection points in his career and what they mean to him. He talks about why the cheapest one on the table is the one that he would be most remiss to lose. And that's the one that he would keep if he was on a desert island. All of those things, you start to get more of a mental picture about this person who most of the time you see on stage singing and playing his guitar. I think that goes to this is probably my favorite genre of podcasting where you get famous people to talk about something totally different to what they're known for. I think of No Laying Up did a podcast with Rory McElroy on Succession earlier in the year, which again was phenomenal. You don't get many of these opportunities to spend an hour or so with someone talking about something that they're not known for. And often it leads to a really interesting discussion in pockets of the conversation about things that they end up being more vulnerable to talk about than they would if they were just in a straight, let's talk about golf or let's talk about singing in this instance. One very interesting thing out of this conversation at the very end they unexpectedly decide to go and buy a very, very expensive limited edition watch together. And then they show how that unfolded post this recording. So you have all the elements that would make a really interesting piece of media. You have something unexpected. You have two very close friends talking about something that they both enjoy and are incredibly passionate about. I had a ton of fun watching this. And it's funny to see two people who aren't employed by Hodinkee will probably post the biggest numbers for their iconic show remind you of anything <laughs> yeah exactly that's just what i was thinking you know we had charlie munger and john collison on our biggest show last week and that will likely be the chart topper there for a good while so some good parallels there yeah you stole my thunder there in terms of being the favorite type of genre where you take two people and have them talk about something that's not directly related to what they do 
but you learn more about them in that conversation, perhaps, than any conversation about exactly what they do and gave good examples. That's why I love that rewatchables on Whiplash was a very similar thing that took place there. And I think there's something really interesting about how Hodinkee has done this and John Mayer being such an interesting character in their overall story, being someone who almost seeded the popularity of that business by just reaching out to them and being interested in what they were doing. And then he has a famous story about him and Ben going and buying watches together and buying that same Daytona together. So pretty neat to see how that's still in the DNA of that organization. And yes, getting two incredible people and talents like cheering and they're on the same recording same episode is pretty neat. I completely agree. Share passions that are outside their domain expertise. First off, John Mayer's a savant. That episode with Rick Rubin is unbelievable. Second, I have never worn a watch. However, in the last couple of weeks, I've watched more Instagram reels of watch negotiations in the Diamond District. And I am obsessed. It is fascinating. I've learned more by watching people negotiate over Rolexes about what's different in them. I had never known. It's just like wild. It's the only example I can really think from social that I'm learning something indirectly from that material. Anyways, save yourself from the watch rabbit hole. Save yourself. (laughs) I'm staying away. If I need to know the time, I can look at my phone. My favorite podcast episode ever and I listen to it probably once or twice a year, which is crazy, is a Bon Appetit ringer collaboration from four or five years ago with Dave Grohl, where they discuss barbecue with Dave Grohl. And Dave Grohl might be the coolest person. Not who's ever lived, but he might be one of the coolest guys in the world. And his enthusiasm about barbecue, it is the most gung-ho thing I have ever heard to the point where he's talking about buying that big egg and then a bigger one and then... By the end of the conversation, he's hosting firefighters and listening to Pantera while tailgating outside of concerts and doing it all for fun and for free. And that's just the coolest. So I highly recommend that episode. It's a Bon Appetit. It's on their feed. I think it's called Dave Grohl Does Barbecue. I mean, I might listen to it right after this. (laughs) It's a good one. I agree. And another great example of that. Grohl, yes, Nirvana and Foo Fighters fame. His talents extend beyond that is the lesson. Almost the Heartbreakers too. Yeah, there you go. Fun fact. My, I hemmed and hawed over this in terms of what to go with here. A lot of good options and choices. What I ultimately arrived on was something that I've listened to over the past few months, and I was actually saddened to see the end of it. And this was a podcast series called Blank Check. It covers directors. And there's this story to how they roll out episodes and seasons. But basically, they cover directors and their careers. And the idea is at some point, they get a blank check to make whatever they want. But you cover them through the arc of their career. So earlier in the year, they did Danny Boyle. Most recently, they covered David Fincher. David Fincher has a fascinating backstory of coming up doing music videos. Then his first film production was Alien 3, which there was a lot of lessons that came out of that. Webb had a great interview with Fincher in the Up to 11 newsletter, which I mentioned. Fincher's just such an interesting character to me. So I found myself over the past two months, every Sunday morning, the new Blank Chep episode would drop. And these are long episodes. These are like three to four hour episodes. And they don't exactly stay on topic for the entire episode. So there's a lot of fluff that gets in there, a lot of bits, a lot of jokes. But 
there was something about it where I felt like I was part of this journey. It gets to the whole idea of podcasting, it's parasocial relationship, but I'm also learning about Fincher. And when I looked two Sundays ago and I was like, it's the end. We covered the killer and now we're just sitting here without another Fincher episode and now we're on to the next thing. I was saddened, but that was my favorite, I think, series. I know I'm cheating a little bit here. I did a lot of reading and learning about different movie directors over the past year. Soderbergh at the beginning of the year, Fincher late in the year. And that one was particularly interesting. And there's so much in his films that's so interesting to learn about the social network, Gone Girl, working with Netflix. So yes, that was top of the list for me. I know I didn't give you guys that information beforehand. So you don't have a lot to work with. And I highly doubt either of you listen to that podcast, but I'll leave it there. I do. And when you said that it was over, I almost fell over. They're not done making the show, right? No, no, no. They're not done making the show. They've just covered all of Fincher's stuff. (laughs) Okay, Um, good deal. Yeah. No, it's a great podcast. Great. Yeah. And it's been going for a while. It's gone through several iterations of what the show is. I only stumbled upon it probably a year ago. And even then, I was like, this is ridiculous. These episodes are so long, and they don't even get into the movie until 30 minutes into the conversation. But then I quickly found myself saying, this is actually an enjoyable listen. Learned a lot about Danny Boyle, then learned a lot about Fincher. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. It sounds like a very good example of why podcasts are difficult to grow and share. Because the podcast that you did say that you might talk about, I went to listen to, and I got probably 20 minutes in. (laughs) I was like, when does this episode start? What podcast did I say? It was Mark Maron with Todd Field. Oh, yeah. What a king. You haven't listened to it. I had no context really on either of them. I started listening to this thing for the first 15 minutes. He's talking in riddles about drugs. Yep. Todd doesn't appear for a good while. I was like, I really am so totally lost. If I didn't have a job, I would have tuned out of this many minutes ago. I don't know if the podcast that you actually end up choosing is similar, but the way you explained it sounds like I may have had a similar thought trying to get myself into that show. You should learn about Todd Field. He's a legend. Well, I was trying to, but it didn't get going for half an hour. <laughs> Usually you can look in the show notes to find where the conversation might start. He had a role in creating Big League Chew. Didn't get any money from that, but did have a role. He was an actor, the famous Nick Nightingale in Eyes Wide Shut. So he got to work with Stanley Kubrick for a bit. Tell some great stories about Tom Cruise, encouraged him to go into the directing world. He's made three films, one of which was Tar, which was an epic movie. And yeah, you don't hear too much from him, but he has this fascinating career, how he's very particular about how he chooses films. And Marin, who's a podcast OG, I don't listen to a ton of his stuff, but he takes the conversation in interesting directions. So it was a good one. I'll tell you what, for it. Todd Field's a legend. I did rules. He's in Twister as well. Oh, wow. Awesome. I think some good recommendations. I think we can make a nice little exhibit with our picks from the year. Anything else we didn't tap into from the past year that you think is worth mentioning? No, I think we did a good job. Got nine things people, plus more actually, people to go and listen, read, watch over the holiday season. So hopefully that fills up your stocking. You can come back in the new year and we can give you some extra new things. I think that's right. I think Webb has a long list. He gave us some honorable mentions, so maybe we can tease some of those out there, too, just so we know the backups, because I think people through the holidays, they'll rip through some content. We nearly had a first cardiac arrest on Making Media as well when you told Webb that blank check was ending. (laughs) (laughs) Prop Man is dead. (laughs) Prop Man is gone. Sorry to scare you like that and any listener who had the same feeling after that. Blank check is around. It's an interesting one. I expected people to like the killer when I recommended it. Blank check, I'm a little bit less certain of. 
And it's my prediction that in five years, Twitter will just be loaded with quotes from the killer and people talking about how much they love the movie. Until then, I'll just talk about it and everybody else will follow eventually. Did you want more recommendations or? No, save those for the, save them for the, either your stuff, your feed, whatever, but trickle those out. Give them a preview, but not a full taste. Awesome. Well, thank you, Webb. It's a pleasure as always. Always. Thanks for sharing the knowledge. Yes, thank you. We'll have you back sometime soon. I can't wait to join again. Bye.